they say so. Psalm 119, verse 33, which says, whoops, yeah, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word, dear servant, who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. That's great stuff there. Now, there are some audio Bibles. I don't know if you guys want one, but if you do, you better grab it, because whoever comes in and wants Have you got an audio Bible? <laughs> what? An audio Bible. A CD. Oh, if you yeah. want one, we got them back there. Somebody sent them to us. And uh, so if you want one, grab it. And uh, we're going to go ahead and read This Day in Christian History, which today is, what is today, 13th? Yes. 13th. 13th. Okay. 13th is, uh, see. All right. September 13th. Can you imagine what it would be like to be someone's 19th wife? Chauncey Webb and his parents were among Joseph Smith's earliest converts. Oh, wow. They first heard Smith in upstate New York in 1833, shortly after he had produced the Book of Mormon and presented himself a new Messiah who would restore true religion to the world. They followed Smith to Kirkland, Ohio, where Chauncey met and married Eliza Churchill, a Mormon girl of 17. The Webbs next followed Smith to Nauvoo, Illinois, where they lived next door to the Brigham Young family. In the summer of 1844, Joseph Smith was lynched by an anti-Mormon mob while in jail. Following his death, Brigham Young became leader of the movement. It was during their time in Nauvoo that Chauncey and Eliza's daughter, Anne Eliza, was born on September 13, 1844, and Chauncey added a second wife. Two years later, the Mormons, having worn out their welcome in Illinois, started west and in 1848 reached Salt Lake City. There at the age of uh, eight, Anne Eliza was baptized as a bishop, as a bishop carried her to a pond and threw her into the water. Four years later, her father began receiving proposals from church dignitaries for her hand in marriage. That means she'd be 12 at the time. When Anne Eliza turned 17, Brigham Young began to notice her. More and more, she was aware of his staring at her. But that didn't stop her from falling in love with an Englishman named James D. When Annalisa was 18, they were married, but all was not well. And within a month, Annalisa realized that the marriage had been a great mistake. Two years and two children later, they were divorced. Sometime later, at a Sunday service, Annalisa realized that Brigham Young was looking at her almost sensuously while he was preaching. After the service, he walked her home and asked her parents for permission to marry her. Annalisa was shocked at the thought of marrying someone older than her father, yet she felt duty-bound to yield to his wishes. On April 7, 1869, Annalisa became the 19th wife of the head of the Mormon church. He was 68, she 24. Young kept the wedding a secret, fearing the jealousy of his favorite wife. After the wedding, Young returned Annalisa to her parents for a while and then put her in a run-down little house of her own. She, like all but the favorite wife lived poorly, receiving a monthly allowance of five pounds of sugar, some candles, a bar of soap, and a box of matches. 
She also received bread from a Mormon bakery and a supply of pork. After a year of marriage, Young decided that Annalisa should live at the farm which supplied his family's food. After three and a half years on the farm, Young moved her to Salt Lake City. There, Annalisa met the pastor of the Methodist Church. She began to spend time with him and his wife, and for the first time in her life, she had the opportunity to observe a monogamous family. She found herself drawn to the world they represented. Annalisa soon decided that her only hope of happiness was to leave Mormonism and divorce Brigham Young. She went to court and was granted divorce in 1874 amidst much publicity and had to sneak out of Salt Lake City at night, fearing for her life. Once out of Utah, she began lecturing against polygamy. A few weeks after her escape, Annalisa was invited to the Methodist Female College of Delaware, Ohio. There, the president carefully explained the gospel to her. It was like a new dawn breaking. Annalisa left the darkness of her past and started a new life in the light of God's saving grace. I have a reflection which says, when Mormon missionaries knock on your door, what should you do? If you are comfortable doing so, make sure they agree to give you equal time and share your testimony with them. If you are unsure of what to say, it's best not to let them in. I would even go stronger, and I'll tell you why in a minute. If anyone tells you, Matthew 24, 23, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't pay attention. There you go. Um, the reason why I say that is because it says in the book of where, let me see if I can. Who, who got lynched? You, you read something about it. Joseph Oh, yeah. Jo Joseph Smith was lynched. The writer of the book. Yes. Yeah, the Joseph founder. Smith. Founder of oh, Mormonism. Brigham, Brigham Young was the other guy. He's the guy that took the mantle and went out to uh, Salt Lake City. And uh, yeah, here's what it says. Um, uh, let's see here. Verse 10 of 2 John. 2 John, verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. If they want to stand outside the door and you give them the gospel, that's as far as I would go. I wouldn't let them even speak to you. Not, not a word about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, any of those things. I wouldn't even let them speak to you. It infects your mind. You tell them, you want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? I will give it to you, but you're not giving me your... And leave it at that. That's, that's what I would do. The what? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I refuse to talk to you about this issue. Okay, we got some prayer requests. Um, Donna Elkin has a torn rotator cuff. We want to keep her in prayer. And then we have Graham has asked for um, Jackson, whom he led to Christ, praying for a fresh start for him and that he'll grow in doctrine and in his uh, knowledge of the Lord. And also he asked us for pray, to pray for Connie, who is spiritually drained after caring for a grandson who is now cleared from cancer. So good job there, but Connie needs some uh, spiritual help just recovering from that. And then, of course, we have Darla, who I don't know if she got out of the hospital today or not. I haven't had a chance to uh, call her because it's been a really busy day. But uh, she was in the hospital till last night, and she would be there today. But I don't know if she got discharged. She has an infection in her hip. She's on an antibiotic drip, and it just has not been a nightmare for her. And then, of course, we want to uh, pray for the folks in North and South Carolina, maybe even Georgia now. It's kind of turning so, which pray that all of the people that are there will be safe and that they'll be wise and uh, you know just these things happen in the world and we'll just hope to hear good news for from all of the people that are being affected by that and then if one more thing is Jennifer who attends here on uh, she comes sometimes on uh, uh, Thursday night and also Sunday morning is her father died yesterday and so we just add her in to our prayers as well because that's that's tough 
but he's a safe believer and so she's you know she's sad for her loss but you know she she knows where he is so that's good stuff so heavenly father you uh, know the prayer requests that have been laid down and uh there are others that i've obviously forgotten to bring up but we do uh certainly pray for all of these people and their needs and we pray for people that are stuck in these cults like mormonism and the jehovah's witnesses that are bound by satan and we would pray that uh, a light would be able to get into some people and change their hearts and change their minds away from those things as well and uh, lord we also pray that you will bless this uh, hour and a half and that we would have proper doctrine that it would be uh, honoring of you and handled rightly so that we would not deviate from your word in any way shape or form and of course we differ with other christians that uh, have different ideas about things like israel things about election and predestination and as long as they're not heretical in nature we would ask that we could be tolerant of their views while correcting them of what is incorrect and uh, that they would understand our adamacy about what we believe is correct as well so lord we just leave these things in your hands and we ask that you guide us and keep us on the straight and narrow path of what is proper and we just we love you and we praise you and we just ask for these things in jesus name amen okay i uh will get started in romans chapter 14 and we're going to be in verse 22 um what is the subject so far of romans 14 that we've been talking about two main things that have been constant in the book of romans chapter 14. eating and the other one is days of the week when you celebrate a, a, a day off or a sabbath or anything like that is as long as you're not pushing that on somebody and you're not actually getting into a heresy about you need to go back under the law and not eat pork or anything like that eating and days of the week that has been the constant theme and so my friend who watches these, his name is Chris, and uh, he uh, he sent me something that is perfectly timed for this uh, particular study. Is the shirt that he gave me it says bacon. It says another reason I know that Jesus loves me. Okay, and that sounds funny, and it almost sounds terrible at first, but it's not if you think about it, because he has freed us from the law, and the fact that we can eat bacon means that he really loves us enough to free us from the burden of the law. So if anybody wants to get finger pointy about my shirt, please don't. Because if you think it through, it actually is a reason to know that Jesus loves us. So there you go. And I love bacon. I'm a big bacon guy. So there you go. But if you don't want to eat bacon, that's fine. As long as you're not doing it to earn God's favor. If you're doing it for that reason, then you've got your own problem. And uh, you need to go back and start at the beginning of chapter 14 and watch the whole series. And you'll understand what I'm talking about. Other than that, though, um, you're free to eat whatever you want. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or all its fullness. Okay, Jim and Linda are not here, so I'm just going to read so that we, uh, uh, let's see here, verse 14, 22. I'm going to go back up to uh, 20, where it's kind of a logical place to start. It says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. That's what we've been talking about continuously. All things indeed are pure, including bacon, but that's not part of the Bible, though. All things are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Verse 22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Okay, before I even get into my comments keep it to yourself before God well we're in a Bible class and so we can't keep it to ourselves before God in this context 
So I just want you to understand if somebody says, well, why are you talking about that, Paul said, because we have to have doctrine and we have to talk about it. So there you go. Um, before I go on, there are probably five or six, maybe seven audio Bibles left back there. If somebody wants an audio Bible, they were sent to me by the person that sent the one that I've been enjoying so much. His name is Tom. And so if you want one, they're back there at the end of the class. If they're there, then somebody on Sunday is going to give them. But you have a chance to have really wonderful audio Bible. There you go. Um, and if you do, um, I don't know if he watches the Bible studies or only the Sunday stuff. But uh, if you do take an audio Bible, the only thing I would ask is that you send me an email thanking Tom so I can forward it on to him. That's all I ask. He sent these out of you know his own good grace, and uh, he wants people to be happy with you know listening to the Bible. So it was a really really nice gesture. So if you want one, there they are. Okay, um, I'm going to read that again. We're going to get into this. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Paul is speaking to believers. Okay, therefore he's speaking to people of faith. Because this is so, the logical conclusion is that his question, do you have faith, is not speaking of saving faith. Instead, it is speaking of the faith which is implied in verses 14 through 21. Everybody got that? He's not speaking of saving faith. All right, he's speaking about the faith that we've already been talking about. This is faith to act in disputable matters. For example, the person who has faith to eat all things as opposed to those who lack the faith to eat certain foods. In such an instance, when it will obviously harm another to exercise your faith, then restrain from doing so. Okay, I'm going to give you an example, which is very basic, but we every week take what after the sermon? The Lord's Supper. Okay, do I want to harm somebody that has been an alcoholic in their past? Absolutely not. So what do we serve when we have the Lord's Supper? Grape juice. Grape juice. Okay. It's the fruit of the mind. If somebody wants to get nitpicky, well, you don't have wine, and that's not, it fulfills the symbolism. When you say the blessing in Hebrew, it fulfills the symbolism. The fruit of the vine, creator of the fruit of the vine. I am not going to have alcohol in this church just because it, you know, somebody thinks, well, that's more appropriate than having grape juice because Jesus made wine in his first miracle or something. All right. We want to have care for people that may have a problem with that. And that's something that we just need to understand. And whatever we do, and whatever we do, we want to make sure that we tend to the people that we are with based on their limitations. I've got my own limitations, and there are certain things I can't look at. There are certain things that I can't think about without them causing me problems. And I'm sure everybody has their own issues in this life, their own spots where sin has infected their minds. Okay, And if we know that a person suffers with those things, then we need to be careful around them with that. Now, I'll give you an example. If you go out to dinner with somebody and you've never met them before and you're just meeting them for the first time and you drink wine and you order wine, you're not offending anybody because this is you're not under any obligation to those people, okay? You're having your meal and the earth is Lord's and all its fullness. But if you know that somebody is coming to a dinner that has a problem with drinking, then it would be appropriate that you don't drink. Everybody understand that? It's it's just common sense that people sometimes seem to lack over issues like this. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, especially in this church, we're not going to do something that I know could hurt somebody that has come to a church that, you know, or I don't even know personally, but they may want to uh, uh, do that, but they've got a problem with drinking. All of a sudden, I'm the cause of their stumbling, going back into drinking because I had a little bit of wine. It's not worth it, okay? So, uh, here we go. Many Jewish believers don't eat pork. 
you're raised in a Jewish family, you've never eaten pork your whole life, you come to Jesus, you understand that he is the fulfillment of the law, that you're not bound to that, but you don't want to eat pork. I have no problem with that. Just leave people alone. Don't try to force what you believe on them, okay? Whether you feel that is right or wrong, would it be right to invite such a friend to your house and serve ham along with all the other food? Obviously not. If you know that he doesn't eat pork products, you shouldn't be serving it. It's that simple, okay? Nor would it be right to invite them over and even without serving ham, argue the point that ham is okay, thus insinuating that they aren't acting like mature Christians. These are the kind of things that can only lead to unhappiness in them. In turn, it will lead to unhappiness in you. Instead of such an attitude, exercise your faith before God. Exercise your freedoms when they won't harm and don't cause an air of animosity to arise over such disputable matters. As Paul said, what was it, a couple verses back, he said, um, uh, if I'm, where is it? If I, uh, uh, I'd never eat meat again, where was that verse? Uh, anyway, you know, it's right here and it's in front of me and my eyes aren't picking up on it. But he says, if I'm going to cause somebody to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, right? And Paul explains why. He says in this verse, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. By acting in this manner, you are actually bringing condemnation on yourself. Again, this is not speaking of condemnation from salvation, as if such a matter could cause the loss of salvation. Rather, it is speaking of condemning thoughts. Such thoughts are, as will be revealed in the next verse, what leads to sin. This is also revealed to us by John in his first epistle, where he says, Beloved, if our hearts condemn us, we have if our hearts heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God, implying the opposite. If our hearts do condemn us, then we don't have confidence toward God. Okay? So we need to understand that. We need to properly act towards other people if we know they have a limitation. If we don't know what their limitation is and they tell us at dinner, listen, I don't drink wine, they say, okay, next time when I go out, we're not gonna do that. But if they haven't told you in advance, it's not your obligation to not drink wine when you go out in public. That's your choice, you're a free human being. But the idea is to not cause something that will be a stumbling block to somebody else or that will eventually condemn you in your own thoughts, okay? Just because we have a right to do certain things, this life application, and just because we have the faith to exercise that right, it does not make it right to follow through with that thing if it will cause another to violate their conscience. By causing others to sin, we sin. Okay? Verse 14, 23, we are at the end of this chapter. Wow. Okay. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. This is speaking of the Jewish guy that you invited to your family, to your house, right? They don't eat pork and you serve it to him and now he feels his obligation to eat it guess what but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin okay and he actually may have faith that it's okay to eat it but he doesn't want to because it's his tradition it's his culture and so there's this thing that's nagging inside of him don't do that to people okay Verse, verse 14, 23, to complete the chapter, Paul finishes with this notable and to-the-point statement. The but is given as a contrast to what he said in verse 22. He asked in verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. If you have faith, exercise your faith before God. Don't lord it over others and don't cause others to stumble. 
Okay, let me see. Uh, yeah, don't cause them to stumble. Use your faith as a tool for sanctification, not for destruction. If you have faith, eat without conscience and be grateful for what you have been provided. On the other hand, where faith is lacking, there is doubt. As we are limited beings, we cannot know everything perfectly. Got that? I mean, that's just the way it is. We can't know everything perfectly. We can't know our own limitations, and we certainly can't know the limitations of others. There will always be areas where we are unsure. Therefore, doubt cannot be sin. However, doubt can be the cause of sin. Everybody understand the difference? Just because you doubt something doesn't mean you're sinning, but your doubt can be the cause of your sin or the sin of somebody else. This is what Paul will now show us. But he says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. The clear understanding of this is that if someone feels that they should not be eating something, pork, for example, and they eat it in order to fit in or because they feel coerced, then they sin. And as I said, we went through a week or two ago, this is very clearly laid out in 1 Corinthians. He goes through in detail the talk about eating, especially things sacrificed to idols, and on and on and on. We read the passage. We didn't go into any detail on it. But if you understand that premise, then you want to not be the cause of somebody else to sin, and you also don't want to sin by going against your own conscience. All right? Not because eating pork is wrong, as is clearly shown in verse 14. Let me take you back up there just so you know what that says. It says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with it. He says there's nothing unclean. But because they are in a state of doubt concerning what they are eating, and the reason for this is because he does not eat from faith. Paul says you're not eating from faith. It is sin. Okay? If you're eating something under any type of compulsion, then it can't be from faith. Faith, by its very definition, very definition, involves doing something which is not forbidden, with a clear conscience and without coercion. Calling on Jesus as Lord implies the exercising of faith in the fact that Jesus is Lord. If one is forced to call on him, have they called on him? Absolutely not. If you say you know, you've got to call on Jesus or I'm going to shoot you or do whatever the Catholics used to do in order to, you know, get. Here's one down in uh, uh, South America. I can't remember the name of the king. They, the conquistadors got there and there was a, a whole bunch of people that they decided that they were going to convert to Catholicism. OK, and the leader of the people, they took him, they gave him the gospel, they baptized him and they strangled him to death. Okay, he was coerced into his conversion. He wasn't converted at all. And so he's not a Christian, all right? He died in his sin. There's a better way to evangelize people than doing what they did. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy, but you can look up the story. And uh, this is what the conquistadors did. They converted people by coercion. And the faith has never been sound in Catholicism since then. It's never been sound. You've got people all over the world in their little branch of Catholicism, Santeria mixed in with it, or this mixed in with it. All around the world, Catholicism has mixture in with it because they did not give people the pure gospel. And it was never something that the, the people were told, this is the way, the truth, and life, and there is no other way. And you go to these other countries, and they've got voodoo, some of them Catholic countries that include voodoo, and all of these other things. Hey, it's not a, a, a sound conversion. All right, so um, let's see here. Once again, I'll read that again. If uh, by, uh, by faith is this very definition, 
calling on Jesus as Lord implies the exercising of faith in the fact that Jesus is Lord. If one is forced to call on him, as they did, then they haven't really called on him. The same is true with something as simple as having certain foods for dinner, okay? Do it out of faith. A Christian who has pork chops for dinner and who eats with a clear conscience implies that he believes Christ has fulfilled the Levitical laws prescribed in the Old Testament because these laws forbid the eating of pork, don't they? Right? We went through all of them. That's Anybody know what chapter that is off the top of their head? Leviticus chapter... It's right after 10 and before 12. Anybody? Yeah, chapter 11. Very good. So, um, if one believes this, the Bible, as the Bible demonstrates is true, then Jesus must be Lord. Why? Because if the law is fulfilled in him, then it died with him. If we are calling on Jesus as Lord and accepting his work, then we must believe that he rose again because one cannot call on a dead Lord. If the law was fulfilled in him and then he died under the law, then the law died with him. If he rose again, then a new covenant must be in place. If a new covenant is in place, which says that nothing is unclean of itself, Romans 14, 14, then accepting that by faith implies that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to read that whole paragraph again. I want you to think about it as we go. When somebody comes to you and says, you're under the commands of the Old Testament, because I get these emails all the time. I don't know if you get in conversations with people like this that are under the Hebrew Roots Movement or Seventh-day Adventists, and they say you can't eat pork and all this. Let me give you the logic again. Start right here. Um, a Christian who has pork chops for dinner and who eats with a clear conscience, which my mom had pork chops when we went out to dinner for Faith's 30th birthday party last week, implies that he or she, in this case, believes Christ has fulfilled the Levitical laws prescribed in the Old Testament because the laws forbid the eating of pork. Are you a Christian, ma'am? Yes. Okay. Uh, do you believe that the Levitical laws are still in place? Okay. Because you had pork chops, you had a clear conscience of that. Now, here we go. If one believes this, as the Bible demonstrates is true, then Jesus must be Lord. Here's the legend. Leviticus 11 says that you are not to eat pork. Okay? Everybody got that. All right. Why? Because if the law is fulfilled in him, which if Leviticus 11, eating pork is a part of that, if the law is fulfilled in Christ, then it died with him because he did what on the cross? He died. There you go. If we are calling on Jesus as Lord and accepting his work, then we must believe that he rose again because one cannot call on a dead Lord. He died in fulfillment of the law. He came out of the grave. If he came out of the grave, then that means that the law that he fulfilled is no longer in effect. He rose again for a new covenant, which is what it says here. If the law was fulfilled in him, then he died under the law, then the law died with him. If he rose again, which he did, then a new covenant must be in place. The law died with him. There must be something to replace it, which is what he said. This is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this as often as you, uh, you know, what we say every Sunday. And uh, if he rose again, then a new covenant must be in place. If a new covenant is in place, which says nothing is unclean in and of itself, Romans chapter 14, verse 14, then accepting that by faith implies that Jesus is Lord. Everybody understand the progression of thought there. Okay. Jesus is Lord. He did die in fulfillment of the law. Okay. But if one eats pork because he feels coerced, then he is not eating from faith. And Paul goes on, and whatever is not from faith is sin. 
If someone doesn't understand the work of Christ in the manner described above concerning the law, then they may feel that dietary restrictions still apply. People get this all the time, okay? There's a difference between believing that dietary restrictions still apply, not understanding the work of Christ. They read the Old Testament and they think, well, I don't understand. Christ died, but, you know, I, I, I'm not supposed to eat pork. That's one thing. If somebody comes and says, you cannot eat pork because it's a part of the law of Moses, and you tell them, well, Jesus fulfilled the law and the law is annulled in Christ, right? And they are still adamant about that, then you need to cut them off. You have told them the truth. You have explained the truth to them. If they are adamant that you cannot eat pork after you've explained it to them, rebuke or correct a brother once, a second time, and then have nothing to do with them. If they are going to be adamant about reinserting law of Moses after completely understanding that the law of Moses is annulled, and it is done. On um, After the prophecy update on Sunday, somebody emailed me. And I had talked about, because it's the feast days of Israel, you've got Rosh Hashanah, and then you've got uh, Yom Kippur coming up in 10 days, and then after that you got the feast of Sukkot. And I said that these feasts are fulfilled in Christ. They are done. And I said the law is annulled in Christ. I said it's annulled, it's obsolete, it's set aside. That's Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10. Okay, and then I said, and it is nailed to the cross. And I gave the symbolism. Jesus embodies the law. He died. The law died with him. Okay. And I said, if we are still obligated to those Levitical 23 feasts, or if they are not fulfilled in Christ, then we have got the wrong Messiah because they are feasts of the Lord. They are not feasts of Israel. They are not Jewish feasts. They are feasts of the Lord. He is the embodiment of the law. He died in fulfillment of the law. Therefore, these feasts cannot be coming. They must be fulfilled. Okay, somebody emailed me and he started getting into, well, you know, we've got a problem in America with, um, I, he's, first he says, I love God's commandments. Well, we all should. We should I, my first response to him was, we've been in the book of Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus now, and now we're in Numbers for eight years. We love the law of God, but it has to be taken in its proper context. Then I went to him and I showed him where in Hebrews those three things are that it's set aside, obsolete, and annulled, in Colossians 2.14, and I explained to him, what this means. I said, we are not under this law. And what he did is he says, the Ten Commandments are an establishment of this nation. I don't disagree with that at all. And he says that the morality in the nation is falling because we're taking out the Ten Commandments. That's irrelevant. That is irrelevant to you observing the law of Moses. There's a difference. If people are taking out the Ten Commandments, which are a basis of the Jewish faith and the basis of uh, establishing America, that's fine. And we should say, you know, these are God's laws, but people need to understand the context of those laws. Just because they get rid of the Ten Commandments from the Oklahoma Capitol or some other place, it doesn't have any bearing on the fact that Christ fulfilled those commandments. And if they take them out, they're not taking out Christ. They're taking out the Ten Commandments. He has already taken out the Ten Commandments. And then he said, you know, by your logic, people can murder and all that. I said, no, there are nine of those Ten Commandments specifically repeated in the New Testament. We're not to do these things. Now, my question would have been, and I didn't get into a, a, a dialogue with him. I just gave him the information and sent it back. And that was it. There was no argument or anything like that. But um, if he had come back and said something, my first question to him would have been, are you observing a Saturday Sabbath or a Sunday church. And if he said a Saturday Sabbath, then I said, well, you need to get out of that. But he didn't come back. Okay. But that would have been my question. And if I said, if he said to me, I'm go to church on Sundays, then I would have said, well, then you're violating the 10 commandments that you say are still in, in effect, right? Because you're not observing a Saturday Sabbath. 
So one way or another, you, the law is a united whole. And this is something that we all need to understand. The law of Moses is a united whole. If you break one command of the law, you have broken the whole law. Okay, There is no such thing as a civil law and a moral law. You'll read this in almost all of the older commentators. They say, well, the civil law is annulled in Christ. The moral law is eternal. That's incorrect. It is one law. The basis of the law is the Ten Commandments, but it was fulfilled in Christ. Christ established a new commandment, wiping out the handwriting of the law of Moses. Done. But because the new covenant says, do not murder, we do not murder. Because the new covenant says, do not steal, we do not steal. Okay? The difference is, and this is what I told him in this email. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 specifically says that God is not counting our sins against us. He is not imputing our, he, yeah, he's not imputing our trespasses against us. One Bible says it one way, one says it another. It means the same thing. Imputing trespasses or counting sins against us. Okay? But we are obligated to do those commandments in the New Testament as prescriptive if we do not obey those. If I murder somebody, guess what? I am not being imputed that sin. I will be counted as a wrongdoer in this country. I'll probably go to jail and I may even lose my life over it, but I'm not going to be imputed that sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.19 explains to us. We will lose rewards over it. We will certainly be you know, we'll get a frown in the, the frowning look from Jesus when we stand there at the judgment seat of Christ, etc. Okay, but we will not be imputed that sin. People need to understand that. If you are putting yourself back under the law of Moses, you're obligated to the law of Moses. Hello, how are you? If you want an audio Bible, we got them right here. If you take one, I've already told everybody else, if you take one, you have to send me an email thanking somebody named Tom so I can forward it on to him. He sent those to the church. Okay, so... Make sure I get an email um, thanking somebody named Tom. But uh, I, I think she's probably going to grab one because that jaw dropped wide open when uh, she saw him. So here we go. Um, uh, so everybody understands that. The law of Moses is a whole. There's no such thing as one and the other. It is a whole. People get scared about that. And it is scary to say, well, you know, the law, the Ten Commandments are done. Unless you think it through. Christ is given us a new set of commandments. We are to be obedient to those. And where did they come from? They come from the apostles. The Old Testament came from prophets. The New Testament comes from the apostles. One way or another, we're under something. But the good part about us being in Christ is we are under grace. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so um, where was I on that? Um, uh, pork has been the example. Oh, I'm going to go back up just a little bit. Uh, to fit in for whatever other reasons they may feel pressured to eat pork. We've been talking about that. If they do so, even though there's nothing wrong with eating pork in and of itself, they are not eating from faith and thus they sin. Okay, pork has been the example here, but Paul says whatever, whatever is not from faith is sin. If one violates their conscience in a matter in order to be pleasing to others, they are not acting in faith. It is better is it better to be a man pleaser or one who pleases God? God is pleased with faith. That is the lesson of the Bible. That is the complete lesson of the Bible. From the Garden of Eden all the way through until the last page of the Bible, God expects us to demonstrate faith. Faith in him. Faith in what he has done. It goes all the way through the Bible. One is coming that will take care of all of this problem. We exercise faith in Jesus Christ. If you honor the Son, you honor the... 
Father. There you go. It it's all comes down to Jesus Christ. All of it. Okay, as a final thought on this, although it is acceptable to not eat pork, it is not acceptable to teach that it is not acceptable to not eat pork. Okay? And there is a difference. The Bible has shown that eating it or any other food is now all right. Therefore, to teach that it is not okay is to violate what the Bible teaches. This then is no longer a matter of conscience, but a matter of doctrine. There you go. Very good. It is a matter of doctrine. To violate doctrine through incorrect teaching is sin. It is absolutely sin. Be careful to know the difference. That's why I heard R.C. Sproul say one time, and I, I've always agreed with him on that, and I have repeated it many times, teaching bad doctrine is sin. That's exactly what I said, and I thought, you know, I've been teaching the Bible, and that's a really scary thought. You know, that's yeah. a scary thought, is that I am responsible for every word that I say. And I, when I get Hebrews, I typed up Hebrews 4.3 yesterday, 4.4 today. Very complicated very complicated what i'm saying and i went back and i read four three again today and i was evaluating it i'll continue to do that until i post it and i thought i actually said out loud to the lord while i was typing lord i don't want to be wrong in this i don't want to be wrong in this even though it's something that most people will never read in this world ever whoever does read it they're going to get some part of doctrine whether they accept it or not from me and i do not want to be wrong in this it's but, like I said, it's a very complicated thing. There's going to be a point where I'm going to say something that doesn't match something else, probably. I mean, this is what happens when you write commentaries on the Bible. Eventually, you're going to forget what you said here, and you're going to say something that doesn't match here. And, I mean, it's a big book filled, filled with a lot of very precise things. And so when I, you know, I said it before, when I type a sermon on Monday, the first thing I do when I'm out taking out the garbage at the mall as I say, Lord, prepare my fingers for the battle, because that's what it is. It is a battle that you're going to go through with his word and with Satan bothering you throughout the day. Oh, good news. I'm going to say something. It wasn't Satan bothering me. It was wonderful. When the uh, audio Bibles were delivered, it was Monday, and I was sitting there typing. And, of course, I started typing at four. Then I went to the, uh, the mall for about an hour to take out the garbage and clean the place up. And then I came back, and I was typing. And it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. So this is maybe, what, nine hours or... Uh, Anyway, whatever it is from four to three, 11 hours. Um, and uh, so I'm just kind of just thinking about something that is in this sermon that I'm typing. And the door goes boom, boom, boom. And oh, I almost jumped out of my pants. I mean, it just scared me because I've got the Bible on my mind. And the dogs all started barking and I walk out and there's a box sitting there, right? And I thought, oh, that must be the box that Tom said was coming. So I, oh, it was heavy. Uh, I brought it in and I set it down. And I thought, I just need to get my mind off what I was thinking for a minute. So I went to the emails and an email had come in within minutes of that box arriving, maybe the same minute. And it was somebody that watches the updates and he said, can you tell me the name of the Bible, the audio Bible that you, uh, that you um, have? He says, I'd like to order that. He says, um, I'm, I'm in a wheelchair or one of those runarounds or something he says we're on disability and i'd like to have something to do and i said guess what the lord provided i i first asked him because if he was overseas I, I wouldn't have sent it to him it would have been too expensive and it would have cost more than the bible itself but i said where are you located are you in america and he says well i'm somewhere blah 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 and uh, i said oh good i said if you'll send me your address i'll send you it and i so anyway uh and I didn't take credit for it. I let him know that they were delivered by somebody else. But uh, uh, anyway, the Lord perfectly worked that out for somebody that is on disability and on, uh, uh, you know, 
I, I just, the Lord is so good. He's so good. My hair's standing up all over me because, you know, it just, everything works. If you look for his hand and things, you're always going to see it there. Always. You know, Bob here, who I'm so glad is back in Sarasota. And he had, you know, when he was up north, he had a stroke. He was with his family. He had somebody there to take care of him. His son was able to come down here and get something established for him. We've got somebody that's able to tend to him right here in Sarasota. On and on and on. If you look at the Lord's hand in things, it always has a purpose. We can say, oh, I'm, you know, my life is so bad and I've had a stroke and I'm... Listen, there is a reason for everything. Every single thing that happens if we can just see his hand in it. And sometimes it's hard. Don't get me wrong. But you, a year later, you turn around and you say... Now I see. I was a grump for nothing. I understand now that he had something in place for me. This is the good thing about knowing the Lord and that he is tending to his children. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, uh, life application. Romans 14 has shown that eating all foods and drinking anything one wishes is acceptable. To teach otherwise is sin and to eat any food apart from conscience is also sin. However, to abstain from any food or drink is not sin. Know the difference and be prepared to defend your knowledge. And if you don't remember, commentary is right online. If you agree with it, go read up on it and then talk to the people about it. If you disagree, plenty more commentaries out there, I'm sure. Okay, verse 15, one, we're in a new chapter. Okay, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves okay chapter 15 begins with the note admonishing those who are strong in the faith we then who are strong this obviously includes paul himself and he is speaking out in plea to those who are like him being strong in the faith is described in the previous chapter and now he brings the thought of those words into a request for harmony within the church those who understand their freedoms and who aren't challenged by the disputable matters okay that arise should bear with the scruples of the weak. That's what Paul says. You bear with their scruples. Matters of diet and days of observance are not to be treated as if they were to be the end of a fellowship and a source of division. That guy doesn't eat pork. I'm never talking to him again. Or that guy eats bacon. I'm never talking to him again. Man, we've already got enough division in this world. We have got a lot of division in this world. We add in simple, stupid things between Christians all the time. It's a constant thing where oh, that guy's a heretic because heck, it has nothing to do with heresy. A heresy is something that is taught wrong about Jesus Christ that will lead to somebody not being saved that has taught that doctrine. If you tell somebody, and I said on Sunday, that teaching that the feasts of the Lord are not fulfilled is heresy. And that is because it is heresy. If you tell somebody that the feasts of the Lord are not fulfilled, we're waiting for a future fulfillment of these, then that means that he didn't fulfill the law. It's not bad doctrine, it's heresy. Bad doctrine is something that is not going to keep them from salvation. There needs to be a difference in your understanding of those things, okay? Now, if you just misunderstood, because for years, I learned my original thoughts about the feasts of the Lord under, do you remember who? We went to Israel with them. Right. Okay. So I'm not going to say his name. He's a wonderful guy, great guy, but he was under the impression that the fall feasts also were to be fulfilled. It makes sense. Oh, you got the spring feast and we got the fall feast. That's the beginning of the church age and that's the end of the church age. Okay. And so I went with it and I, I thought that for years until I started to realize the importance of the law of Moses in Christ's fulfillment of it. And I was wrong because I learned wrong and what sounds good does not mean that it is right. 
okay? And so I started to study the face of the Lord on my own. Then I'd listen to other people talk about them, and 99.9927% of the people say the feasts of the Lord need to be fulfilled, the fall feasts. And every time I hear that, now I think how damaging that is. Somebody hears a tradition, they hear a tradition, not something biblical, a tradition, and they pass it on. And if you tell them that you are required under this, that is going to keep somebody from understanding that Christ fulfilled the law. That's how damaging it is. But I, you know, I was like the other people. I just didn't think that issue through. And now that I understand that, I will never tell somebody that that is correct doctrine again. I'll tell them you are incorrect. Here's why. And if they reject that, now they've rejected what the Bible clearly teaches. So you need to be precise on these type of things. But there is an, a reason why people are, believe these things is because that's the common teaching. It came out with the, the Jews coming back into Israel, you know, at the, uh, what, about 1960s, the, the Jewish movement. It was sometime after Israel had been planted back in the land, and all of a sudden people started doing, oh, we're going to have a Passover at our church, and we're going to do this. And they started understanding something that people never talked about for 2,000 years in the church history was the Jewish side of things. It was completely rejected. And so we go back and we start saying, well, look at how all of the New Testament points to Jewish thought. Paul was a Jew. He wasn't a Christian in the sense of what we think of a Christian, you know, a guy that isn't Jewish. He was a Jew, okay? And so all of a sudden, we start developing a different type of theology, and we add in things that don't belong there. You'll see it all the time. Well, Jewish tradition says, Jewish tradition says, I don't care what it says. If it doesn't say it in this book, then it is not to be held to as biblical, Whatever Jewish tradition says is fine, as long as it matches the Bible. If it doesn't, then we need to be careful with it, okay? That's the important thing, is to go by this. I don't care what Jewish tradition says, if it doesn't match this. Now, if it doesn't conflict it, if it doesn't conflict with it, that's fine. Teach whatever you want about Jewish tradition, if it doesn't conflict with the Bible. But you need to make sure that what you're saying squares with the Bible. It does not square with the Bible to say that there are three feasts yet to be fulfilled in any way, shape, or form. Christ is the fulfillment of them. Okay, so um, where were we with that? Um, being strong in the faith is described in the previous chapter, and now he brings in the thoughts of those words into a request for harmony within the church. Those who understand their freedoms and who aren't challenged by the disputable matters that arise should bear with the scruples of the week. I know I've read this already. I'm just going through it again. Matters of diet and days of observance are not to be treated as if they were to be the end of the fellowship and a source of division. Rather, the stronger in the faith has the onus on him to accept those who practice differently or who fail to see the complete freedom found in the finished work of Jesus. Instead of lording their knowledge and freedom over the weak, they are to bear with their habits and not merely please themselves. This is the heart of love, which he writes about elsewhere, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter... Love, love. 13. 13. 13. There you go. And as a case demonstration of this, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me go there. 1 Corinthians chapter... I turned right to it. 9, and he says in verse 19... For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. 
to the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And then verse 23 says, now I do this uh, for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Okay, so Paul became all things to all men. And that becomes, believe it or not, once again, a stumbling block to people that think that they have to observe the law of Moses because Paul will do certain things in the book of Acts, like he took an, a vow and then he goes down to Jerusalem to fulfill the vow and blah, 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 right? And so they say, see, Paul, he's the apostle to the Gentiles and yet he's telling, he's doing these things. Well, what did he say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? I became all things to all men so that I might save some. Elsewhere, he says exactly the opposite about you. You are not required to do these things. These things don't apply. What he the standard he placed on himself is not the standard that he expects of all people. He did this for a particular reason. He was a Jew trying to convert Jews. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, and so he was there to convert Gentiles, and he became all things to all men. That is not applicable to us. His words to us are what are applicable, okay? Everybody understand the difference. When he does something in the book of Acts as a Jew, it's not that he expects all of us to do those things. It's because he was doing it to not offend his Jewish brothers in order to bring them to Christ. Okay, throughout Acts, oh, here it is. Paul is shown to be emphatic to those who were lesser informed or who were weaker in the faith. However, he also stood against heresy and those who would put confusion into the mind of the believers. He had a balanced approach to his handling of such matters. When someone was not following the faith in a proper manner because of a lack of knowledge, he stooped down to their level and he worked within their state to edify them and to also instruct them. However, when someone wasn't following the faith in a proper manner, but who should have known better, he challenged them openly. Who am I thinking of right now? Peter. Peter. Absolutely. Galatians chapter 2. As a matter of fact, let's go there. Let's go there. Galatians chapter 2. And it's funny how you can send verses like this to people and they just, they won't have anything to do with it. But here it is. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. And we're going to say, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For certain men came from James. Before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. Right? Peter was eating with the Gentiles, something that was not allowed under the law. He wasn't allowed to do that. He wasn't allowed to associate with them or eat their foods or anything like that. But here he was eating with them, understanding that Christ was the fulfillment of the law and he was no longer bound to it. But... When they came, meaning the Jews, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them, All, oh, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh, no person on this planet, no person ever will be justified by works of the law no one will be justified. And here he stood right out in Peter's face and he said, listen, 
you are not acting in accord with the gospel. And yet somebody that did exactly the same thing that didn't have knowledge, what would he do? He'd bend over backwards for him. He wouldn't challenge him. He wouldn't. He would just simply correct them quietly. But Peter, he actually called him out. And then what did he do afterward? He wrote about it. He put an embarrassing stain on Peter for everybody to see throughout the entire church age, because this is what God expects of us, is to hold to sound doctrine and to not waffle in our convictions about this book and about what Christ has done. Because if we're willing to waffle on this, we have no grounding at all. We have zero. This is where it is right here. You, Burke and I were talking about somebody before class today that uh, just doesn't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in that. And he said, well, you ought to read it. Just read the thing, yeah. right? If you just absorb the word of God, eventually it's going to have effect in your life. It's got to. It's got to have an effect, right? My word will not return to me void. It may be to harden somebody. It may be to soften them, but it's not going to return void if people will just simply take the time. Theology is hard work, though, isn't it? I mean, how long have we been in the Book of Romans now? I mean, we've been in there for a long time, and it's mind-numbing. And you go back, and what, what did he say in chapter 5? I don't remember what I said in chapter 5. You know, it's just, it's difficult work. You have to stay in it all the time. You have to listen to it all the time. The more you're in the Bible, the better off you're going to be. There are a million things that you can fill your time with, but the word of God is the best thing of all to fill your time with. That's all I can say about that. So Galatians 2, 11 through 16, which I just read you, where he confronts Peter head on. This is the proper way to conduct affairs. And this is what Paul appeals to. Life application. Determine the situation concerning a challenge to write doctrine and act accordingly. If the person is ignorant of a matter, handle them as you would with your own child, with love and instruction, right? You guys don't know something in here? Do I yell at you and jump all over you? No, but I might question you. I say, okay, now you've given me that question. You answer to me, right? I'll do that to you sometimes. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot and embarrass you. I'm trying to get you to think the issue through. The more that you interact with me, the better off you are going to be because you're going two ways and not just one way. Before I taught, I had no idea how to teach. I had read this book by the time that I started teaching. I bet you I'd read it a hundred times. Okay. I don't know the math, but I read it once a week for a couple of years. All right. And I had never taught the Bible in my life. I knew this book very well. I, you know, I think I, I don't want to brag about it or anything. I, I just knew because I'd read it many times, but I, this was 2003. I had known the Lord now for two, two years. Okay. N known his word from 2001 to 2003. And we went into West Florida Christian school where our kids went from the time they were in kindergarten. We came back from Malaysia and uh, the public education here was not as good as Malaysia. And I said, they're not going to a public education. After a week or two, I took them out of there and we got them a private school. And that happened to be the cheapest one, not because we were Christians, but because I wanted them to just be in a private school. So um, uh, Thor, I don't know if you remember this, but Thor used to have hair down to hair, my son. And we had him dressed like a samurai because he's Japanese, right? So anyway, they said, he's got to cut that. And I'm like, what? I had no idea that, you know, anyway, we cut his hair. So they went to West Florida Christian School. And so we are in there in 2003. I know the Lord. I know what the word says. And I had no idea how to tell somebody about Jesus. Zero. And so Pastor um, uh, Ross, thank you. He walked in and uh, he's the president and the pastor. He's president of the uh, church and he's the pastor or principal, not president. He's principal. It's a dual hat over there. And he walked in and he said, you're the Garrett's, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, do you know Jesus Christ? He, he would do this to anybody. He didn't care. The first thing he'd ask you is, do you know Jesus Christ? I said, oh, yes, sir. I know him real well. And here's a 
sack of potatoes. He just threw me over there. He looked at Hedico. He said, do you know Jesus? And she said, has not hit me like husband. <laughs> and he says, well, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And so he started just going into there and he gave this real quick example. And he talked to her for about four minutes, four minutes, maybe. And she says, I want to receive Jesus. Now, this is, I'm with her every day. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm reading the Bible in front of her. I'm being the best husband I can be and all this kind of stuff. Didn't have an effect on her. None. Planted the seed. Well, yeah, whatever. Planted the seed, whatever. But he led her to the Lord in about four minutes. But I'll tell you one thing I did. I paid attention to every single word he said because now I know how to do it. Even knowing the Bible doesn't mean that you're going to be able to communicate what you know, right? And so I started going out and everybody I met, can I tell you about Jesus? And sure enough, you, you, the more you do it, it's like praying out at the projects, right? Everybody here knows if you go out to the projects, first couple times you're there, you don't want to pray and I don't know what to say. And you just have to start opening your mouth and praying and pretty soon it becomes natural, right? So we're telling people about Jesus and I'm explaining the gospel to people. And I still had no idea how to teach the Bible. And so I thought there's only one way to do this. And so I got the sign, Bible questions answered. And I went out to the beach with two chairs and I put it out there and people would walk up and start asking questions. And I had no idea how to answer. No idea. Well, I tell you, you get embarrassed over a question once, you'll never do that again. And so you just, next time somebody asks the same question, because people tend to ask the same questions, you just remember what you didn't know last time that you went home and checked. And next time you're able to tell them. And the more you teach, the better teacher you're going to be. Okay. And that's why I ask you questions, just because you're getting things to come back. And now you can say, oh, like I just asked a couple minutes ago, what's the word? And she said doctrine. Well, she knew it. Now everybody else is going to be able to say, yeah, Cindy answered doctrine. And so now I know that's the answer to that question. And you're learning how to respond at the same time as just listening. When you're listening, it's passive. But when you're teaching, it's active. And you're learning as you're teaching. So just it's a lesson for you. There you go. Um, okay, so we're in uh, verse 15 two. And let's see here. Where was I? Did I start 15.2? I don't think I did. No. Okay, 15.2. we got to read that. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. To edify means to build up. Paul just introduced chapter 15 with the statement that the strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, not to please themselves, okay? You know doctrine they don't know doctrine and what do you do you just slam them over the head with it no you put up with the bear with the scruples of the weak okay bearing with the weak is to tolerate their weakness not find fault in it you stupid dummy how can you not know that well, the first thing you're going to do is say i don't want to know what the bible says anymore they're going to go out and watch tv the rest of their life you just treat people nicely okay rather than following a course which picks away at their already weak foundation, we're admonished to work with them. And so speaking to the body of believers, he asks that each of us please his neighbor for good. A neighbor can be defined in the broader sense of our fellow man, okay? And we should strive for the good toward all men, it is true, but based on the context, he is asking us to evaluate our conduct towards our neighbors in Christ. It is to them that we should endeavor to be pleasing in a way which will lead to edification. Okay, that's the context. We want to keep it in there, but it's true. We should be that way to all people. Sometimes it's awful hard, especially with the politics going on in the world today. But, you know, that's what we should try to do, or at least for a moment. And then after that, there's you're going to see there's no fellowship on one side or the other. And that's just what's happened. So um, yeah, I, I'll say this right now. 
I, I think it all the time. I say it once in a while on Sunday. I may have said it on a Thursday, but we have the right man for this time in this nation because we are mm -hmm. so divided from the past 10 or 12 years of presidents. <laughs> we are so divided. We have somebody that actually has to not just fall over and cave to everybody's whims. He says, I'm going to do this. I don't care what those people say. And this is the decision I'm going to make. And that is what we need right now. We need somebody that is willing to say, this nation is divided. It is not going to be undivided by me. He understands that. And so he's just got to stand firm and he's got to make decisions. The Lord placed him here at the right time for the right reason. Somebody might come along and make peace between the two warring sides. But right now it's not going to happen. They literally hate everything that he has done before he was even in office. There is nothing he can do, right or wrong, that will please them. Nothing. If he died, they would say he didn't die fast enough. That's all there is to it. So I'm thankful to the Lord for the president that we have because I could not sit up there in that office and take the abuse he takes day after day. Yes. The hurricane is Trump's fault. Oh, I saw that. The hurricane is Trump's. Everything is this guy's fault. Right? Yeah. It's just like the red tide is Rick Scott's fault. Well, you know, I'm tired of that. So now I'm going over to Bill Nelson's page and I'm saying that it's Bill Nelson's fault and the libs are going crazy. Of course, it's not their fault. It's neither one of their fault. Red tide is a natural occurrence, but oh, it's crazy. Okay, so let's see here. Um, the idea is, I'm gonna read the last sentence again. It is to them, to the neighbors in Christ, that we should endeavor to be pleasing in a way which will lead to edification, that will lead to building them up, okay? The idea is to build up the body promoting harmony within the faith and to bear the burdens of the weaker without finding fault the world at large is watching and evaluating christ based on his servants you've probably heard mahatma gandhi's quote at one time or another he says i would love to be a christian if it wasn't for all the christians or you know something it was basically like that in other words we're such a bad example that who would want to follow them well, that's the that's a, a, actually a category mistake because you don't follow the followers of the faith. You follow the leader of the faith. You look at him and his words and forget what those people are doing. If you're going to make that kind of a category mistake, you're going to do it with everything in life. That's just all there is to it. Yes. The only reason he was able to make that statement and gain publicity is because he was opposing a Christian nation. Oh, that's right. That's exactly right. He was opposing England. If it had been... Nazism or Russian. Yep, that's exactly right. If you understand the logic of what he said, if he said that under Nazis, if they were in charge of India at the time, they would have had him killed. But because India was a Christian nation, a moral nation at the time, their foundation would not say that he can't say that. He has a right to say that, and so he's got his followers. And so the very fact that he could say that under a Christian nation is a testimony to what a Christian nation means, right? We're in the United States of America, and despite what our previous president said, this is, according to the law of the land, you may or may not know this, but according to the law of the land in the United States of America, this is a Christian nation. If you don't believe me, go back and read the Trinity decision. I think it was 1892. It was the longest researched decision ever in the Supreme Court of the United States of America. They went back and they read all of the founding documents, all of them, and went through everything because a suit had come up saying that this isn't a Christian nation. And they came back and they said, by the mass of organic utterances which established this nation, we find that this is a Christian nation. And that has never been repealed by a later Supreme Court of the United States. And therefore, it is the law of the land that this is a Christian nation that has never been revoked. 
So when people tell you things like that, the very fact that they can speak against this nation, the very fact that they can hate Christians yeah. is because this is a Christian nation. Any other nation in the world, they would be executed for what they believe. We know, we see all over the world right now, people that are blowing other people up, shooting people, quieting them down. We've got even people in the, the cyber world which are doing this right now because they can, okay? But this is a Christian nation. Then when it stops being that way, then there won't be any tolerance at all. There will be no tolerance. So we're frittering away our rights in this nation because we have enmity towards the one that allows us to give us those rights. Anyway, there you go. Okay, I'll read that again. The idea is to build up the body, promoting harmony within the faith and to bear the burdens of the weaker without finding fault. Once again, we'll read this. The world at large is watching and evaluating Christ based on his servants. It is true that some profess Christ who aren't really in Christ, but to weed them out is where right belief and right practice are to be defined. We can't do this if we don't know our instruction manual. Got to know this if you can do that, okay? By knowing the word and defining the parameters, we can then endeavor to bear with those who are weak within those confines. If we don't know the word, then we can't do it. We have to know the word in order to be able to do this. Life, doc, life, app, life application. Blech. Doctrine does matter. Once we have right doctrine, we then need to accommodate those whose practices are weak within that context. By doing so, we will build up, not tear down, our fellow believers. Okay? 15.3. Let me read that to you. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The you and that is capitalized. It's speaking of God. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Okay? To, to give us an example of how we should act in disputable matters, Paul refers to the example of Jesus Christ himself. He has shown that we should bear with the scruples of the weak and not attempt to merely please ourselves. In essence, there's a question. Is our temporary gratification worth being bringing discord between saved believers. We're going to show how smart we are, and that's going to bring discord between people. Is it worth it? Okay. Rather, we should be willing to let those things rest and to instead serve for the sake of Christ and not self. In substantiation of this, he cites Psalm 69, verse 9. Okay, let me take you back here and just read it. They usually are a little bit different. Uh, the apostles normally will cite the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, instead of the Hebrew text. So 69 verse 9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. So that's what he's citing there. He goes back to scripture in order to justify that, and he also shows that that verse is speaking of Jesus, okay? That's something that we can learn from the uh, Bible is as we're reading it, they keep going back to the Old Testament, and they keep pulling out these verses that don't seem to say anything, and all of a sudden it's pointing to Jesus, because everything points to Jesus, right? So... Here we go, um, 69 verse 9, John 2, 17 refers directly to this same verse and applies it to the time when Jesus cleared the temple. He was interested in the honor of God, not in pleasing himself. And this is seen throughout the rest of his ministry. When he was tired, he still served others. When he was hungry, he never failed to make sure others were fed. When he would face the agony of the cross, he asked that his father's will not his will be done he was always looking out for the best of others right he's tired he wants to go to sleep a bunch of people show up and what does he do he feeds them 
No matter what he was doing, he was always thinking of other people. Having said that, I'm, good news for you. You didn't know the bad news, but good news. Sergio got really sick for the past two days, and he's doing better now. So uh, mm -hmm. I just remembered that. We don't, you know, I didn't write down to pray for him because he's all better, and we're having a nice conversation with him. But, uh, yeah, he, he ate something that really got him in a bad way. So we're glad you're okay, Sergio, if you're there. Um, yeah. Oh, boy. The things he does for this church, I'm telling you, he is such a blessing. And Rhoda, she's always there with him. Uh, just what a great couple. Anyway, sorry to divert, but it came to mind and I had to mention, thank the Lord. Um, let's see here. Um, and throughout it all, him helping others, him being there, tending to the needs of others, throughout it all, he received reproach and contempt. If he was doing the will of the Father, then the contempt was directed ultimately toward the Father, but it instead fell on him. This then is our example. If our actions and our conduct are correct and in line with Scripture, and yet someone finds fault in them, then ultimately who are they finding fault in? The one who wrote the Scriptures that we are being adherent to, right? They are finding fault in God. When we do what is right and in accord with Scripture, and they say, well, that's wrong. And you hear it all the time, those Christians, and they start pointing at you. Well, you're, you're a homophobe, and you're this, and you're that. Who are they finding fault in? You? Absolutely not. They're finding fault in the Creator, the one that said, don't do this thing. So in the end, the, the what do you call it? The, it's not on your shoulder. Just let it go right off your shoulder. It's falling on the Lord, and they will have to face the Lord in judgment. If you're living properly, whatever they say, the reproaches of those who reproach me approach you fall on me there you go anyway um so uh but in order to glorify the lord we should let the reproaches of those who reproach christ fall on us by doing this christ was able to change hearts and minds and that is exactly what we are asked to do and it's not easy i can tell you that right now it's not easy to just take the punches my brother worked for the county for years. I worked for him for a short time, but he worked for the county and he would go out and take care of lift stations. Okay. He's an electrician and an electronics engineer. And so he'd go out in a lift station. You know, some places, if you have uh, a city that's up here, uh, you know, and people living kind of uphill, up north, where are they going to put the wastewater plant? They're going to put it down here because it's no cost to have the water run down to the plant. And so that's where they do the processing of the plant. In Florida, everything is flat, right? So what do we have? We've got something called lift station. So what you do, you flush, it goes out into the road and it starts going down a slope, okay? And it does not take much for water to flow, okay? One quarter of an inch for every 100 feet is all that's required. But you start going a couple miles and eventually you're getting deeper and deeper and deeper, right? And so what happens is the water's flowing and it finally goes into a big well that they've dug in the ground, okay? And then that has two pumps on the bottom of it and it lifts the water and it goes down a pipe. It's just gravity feed. It's not force fed, okay? So in other words, a pressure main means that something is being forced through a pipe and there's pressure. If you break the pipe, it's going to go everywhere. A lift station isn't like that. It lifts it up and it goes and it just gravity feeds down. For another couple miles and eventually you get to another lift station okay that's what a lift station you'll see them all over now that you know what they are they got a red light on them and you'll see the light ding 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 that means lift station one of the pumps has failed and it's about to overflow okay so um lift stations do this and then eventually you have what's called a force main the last pump stations before a plant has to force it because it goes up into the plant and then from there a plant is usually gravity all the way to the back of the plant there's very little lifting except what is returned okay so you've got the idea my brother took care of lift stations. 
And where are lift stations? They're wherever they need to be. And on Siesta Key, the houses are very, very expensive, right? And they don't want lift stations and they certainly don't want you who's in a blue shirt coming out and working in their backyard. But guess what? It has to go somewhere. And so he's out there working. They come out and they say, you have no right to be here. Well, you know, if I don't fix this, then your house is going to back up and then you'll think I have a right. Okay. But what happens is they just, they, they'll yell at him, abuse these employees that are doing their job for the good of the people. And he said, I said, how do you stand it? You know, I work in a plant. I never saw anybody. I said, how do you stand it? He said, I just keep taking it. I just like, he's getting punched. And he said, I just keep taking it. And I thought I couldn't do it. I would literally punch him and be done with it. I'd lose my job. I, I, I would. I, I know my limitations. As Clint Eastwood says, a man's got to know his limitations. And I know mine. There's no doubt. I could not take it in public like that. Well, this the reason why I'm giving you all that example about list stations is to say that this is what is expected of us. Just keep taking it. And it's not easy. It is very difficult to take it. But when somebody is ragging at you about who you are, if you go back and you're angry with them, all you're going to do is make them harder against Christ. It's difficult. I'm, I tell you right now, it's very difficult. But I'm probably not the guy to answer questions when people start getting belligerent because I got very little tolerance with them. I, I don't mean to be that way. I just am that way. And I, I, it's very difficult for me to say, listen, I've told you what the Bible says. This is, I'm representing the Lord. Take it up with him. And yet they still want to argue the point. They want to argue the point. And it's very frustrating. So I, I'm not the right guy. If somebody says, well, yeah, I understand the logic and I disagree, then everything's fine with me. I got no problem with that. But if they belligerently argue like these people do to my brother, which he's not with the county anymore. Oh, yes, he is, but he doesn't do that anymore. Maybe, does he still do lift stations? Not that I know of. Okay, anyway, I think he's more working around plants and stuff, you know, the, the big stuff where pumps are pumping billions of gallons a minute and stuff. But anyway, he's a really smart guy. He's, he's like one of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet in your life, and you'd never know it. He's very quiet, very humble, but he is really smart. Anyway, um, here we go. Um, uh, I'm going to read from the top of this paragraph again. By doing this, by being patient with people, allowing them to just keep punching you, okay, Christ was able to change hearts and minds, and that is what we are asked to do. Through our willingness to not argue over these disputable matters, we will ultimately be able to change the weaker brother to understand what is right and acceptable. Paul will show us this in the coming verses. Our actions are to be with the intent and the purpose of bringing the body to a place of harmony, agreement, and of being of one mind even in disputable matters. In Hebrews 5, 7, we read this. I mean, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, he says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Christ Jesus came in a body of flesh to do the will of God. And it was this will of God that was his driving purpose and sole aim. Where sacrifice and offering, things mandated under the law, failed to please God, Christ was able to be pleasing to him. And this is what is expected of us. We can exercise our liberties in Christ and yet not be pleasing to God because of how it affects others. 
Just because we're doing something according to the rule of the book doesn't mean that we're doing it properly because it'll affect others negatively. Need to remember others. And it's hard. It, it's hard. But it's what we should be doing. Life application. Christ is our example. If we can continuously remember this in everything, everything that we do, then we can know how to properly conduct our affairs. Jesus never sacrificed doctrine in order to accommodate others. We have that all over the world today, people talking about this Jesus and that Jesus, and it is not the Jesus of the Bible. He never sacrificed doctrine. When we get these people with the homosexual agenda out there and they make these comments and these statements in public, in churches, wherever, completely false. He, it all comes down, God is love, Jesus is love, we need to follow his example, and these people need to, that is completely false, 100%, absolutely false. He never sacrificed doctrine in order to be pleasing to others. He upheld doctrine to the nth degree. He Full understood the, what's that? Full of grace. And Full of truth. grace and truth. That's right. He understood the main thing, the main thing. The, the main thing, the main thing. Exactly right. He understood those people's limitations. He gave them grace. But at the same time, what did he say with the woman who was uh, caught in adultery? Go and keep it up. No, go and sin no more. Absolutely right. Go and sin no more. She got grace, but she also got the word of truth. Okay? He said the same thing to who was the guy? Um, uh, said the same thing. You know, don't do this anymore. Paralytic. What's that? The paralytic. The paralytic. Thank you. I know. Something I think, worse is worse is going to happen. Something worse is going to happen to you. That's if you keep sinning. That's exact. That was what I was thinking of, and I couldn't get it out of my teeny little brain. As it says, missing brain cells right there. So um, let's see here. So he's our example. He is the one that uh, never sacrificed doctrine in order to accommodate others, nor did he excuse a violation of the law in others. However, he worked within the framework of the law to show the heart of his father. This is what we are asked to do within the framework of our Christian liberties. He's still speaking about the same issue here. He's speaking about the issue of foods and, uh, what do you call it, uh, days of the week. He's summing that up and he's getting into other things here quickly. But he's still talking about the same general idea. Okay, we got time. We do have time for one more, so we're going to do it. Verse 15, 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. This is something that when the guy emailed me about that, you know, about, well, you know, we need to uphold the law of Moses and all this. And I went back and all I did was correct him. There was no argument or anything. But uh, uh, we need to understand what, he, what did he say here? He said, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That's why we're going through the law of Moses is because, you know, I mean, some people do. Somebody else that uh, watches the sermons online said that her pastor is going through numbers as well. And I thought, how rare. How rare. You know, it's just not a, a book that is popular, right? It's a lot of numbers. It's very head hurting to go through it and to study it and to think, what are you trying to tell us, Lord? I mean, the past few sermons that I've typed have literally wiped me out by the end of the day. But we're going through it because it needs to be gone through. To understand what Christ is doing in the New Testament, you have to understand what he did from the Old Testament. I don't understand how we can have that disconnect. But there you go. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Let me read that again. That we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, he's writing about the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. He's writing about the Old. Through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, 
we might have hope. The law, the law which gives no hope at all, still pointed to Christ who is our hope, okay? So the law itself is good. It's something that we should learn. It's something that we should apply to our lives in the context of Christ. We'll read it one more time. That we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That's why when Tom sent me those audio Bibles, I was so happy to think, I'm going to be able to leave them there and somebody is going to benefit from these. I mean, people can send anything to a church. I appreciate this very much. Chris, I love it. But I got to tell you what, the word of God, if it gets into people's lives, if they listen to it and they apply it to their lives, what is of more value on this planet than that? You tell me if there's anything that's worth more to their lives than learning the word of God. Man, I have had that thing going in there. I, I'm so excited and I turn it off. And you know, when you turn off a CD, uh, like in your car, it, it'll say like, and uh, Moses uh, said, amen. Okay. And you turn it off right then. And then you come back and it'll start with, and said, amen. In other words, you hear the last couple words. And so I'm always excited to remember that last word to get my brain in, in the gear for what's coming ahead. I love that CDs do that. Anyway, it, it's wonderful that you can listen to the Bible. Imagine that. A couple years ago, no such thing existed. We have the internet where we can access any word in the Bible with all of its etymology, all of its meaning, all of its possible meanings, everything. In one second, we can have all of that at our fingertips. We are so blessed. I just cannot believe how blessed we are in this generation. And yet how bad it is for us in this generation because we have all of the other things. You know what? Bible Gateway. Here I am. I'm on Bible Gateway and I have it up every every day. It's on all day, every day on my computer. But on Monday, it's open. I have two or three Bible Gateways open because I want to, numbers nine is what I'm typing on Monday, right? Well, I don't want to lose that. So I open another one so I can research things. And then I get an idea and I don't want to lose that. So I open the third one. I got Bible Gateway open in three of them. And guess what? Right on Bible Gateway, there's girls selling lingerie. And so I have to see that while I'm, yeah, well, you know, it's just advertising, whatever they're advertising. And so with all of the good, there's always these things that you have to be careful with, right? So whatever, I just, I, I'm just so thankful that at least we have the good, because if not, if all we had was the internet, but we didn't have all the Bible stuff on there, it'd be terrible. Yeah. It'd just be terrible. But technology is neutral. It's what you do with it. Okay. Technology is neutral. All right. I don't want a cell phone. I don't want anything to do with it. But anyway, where are we? We're around 15.4. I've read that. So I'm going to give you the comments. Oh, we got five minutes. I don't know if we're good. Yeah, I'm going to go quick. Paul just quoted the 69th Psalm. Now is a way of showing that the Old Testament still has value and is to be relied on and consulted. He begins with or. This ties us to the quote and is a way for him to remind us that we should rely on the wisdom found there in order to understand the work of Christ more fully. Old Testament, understand the work of Christ. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures were the only scriptures at Paul's time, and they are what he and the other apostles relied on to understand and explain the work of Christ. Okay, nothing has changed since the completion of the New Testament either. The Old Testament is not to be discarded in our personal, spiritual, our pursuit of spiritual knowledge. The quote from the 69th Psalm was speaking in a large way about the patient endurance of Christ during his ministry. In reading that, Paul's mind may have suddenly thought something like, and isn't that what we are to find for ourselves when we search the scriptures? And so he equates our journey through them as a journey of spiritual understanding especially in how it relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
that is what the Old Testament is for. It's a spiritual journey. And so he notes that whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Those Old Testament scriptures, which took hundreds and hundreds of years to come forth, didn't lose their relevance when Christ came. Instead, they became relevant in an entirely new way. For us, they now, through the patience and comfort found in them, provide us hope. We get that every Sunday. We get hope out of these verses. As complicated as they are, we get hope out of them. Keeping this verse in context with the train of thought that he has been pursuing, this patience and comfort is then tied directly to our comfort among the brethren concerning doubtful matters. Paul isn't suddenly jumping out of his previous discourse. Instead, he's tying this psalm and the application that he has derived from it directly to the concept of the fraternal bonds of Christian fellowship. This will be evident from the coming two verses, which we'll get to next week, okay? The Lord willing and the Greek don't rise. Life application, the Bible reveals a harmony between the New Testament and the Old. The two Testaments contrast, and yet they confirm one another. There is the law and there is grace. They contrast, and yet they confirm the whole counsel of God. In order to understand the fullness of God's intent for us, we need to study and apply the entirety of Scripture to our lives. Okay? You've got to say a prayer. I got a little long-winded before I started that, so we're down to one minute. So here we go. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for this treasure that you have given us. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who gave us so much wonderful instruction from that vast knowledge he had of the Old Testament. And thank you that his heart was turned to following you from a person of legalism. He was a Pharisee and he was at enmity with you and your purposes for the people of the world. And yet he devoted his life in a great way to serving you, to building us up through his pen and through the inspiration that you filled him with. We thank you for that. And we thank you that we are the recipients of this and all of the goodness you've given us with your majestic word. Lord, we thank you for it. And we do pray once again for the people that are facing this hurricane. Please be with them, especially your people who have trusted in you, that you will deliver them according to your wisdom. And if harm comes to them, help them to understand why that it's a part of your plan for them in their lives and uh, to just accept it and to uh, praise you through the storm. I would pray that you would build them up in this, that they would be able to do that. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me turn this. I've probably got about 30 seconds left here, so let me get this backed up. Say goodbye to the folks online. Let's see your break. There we go.